Welcome to the Get the Knack Podcast. I am your host, Jerry Knack, and I'm coming to you from the Get the Knack Podcast studio in Ocean Shores, Washington, and I am joined by a very, very special guest. He was my supervisor in the military. He taught me how to be a disc jockey. He taught me how to be a talk show host, taught me a lot of different things. And he went on to become a rocket scientist, but we'll get into that. He'll say he's not a <laughs> rocket scientist, but he was he's worked for NASA. We're going to talk about how he went from be, being an Armed Forces radio disc jockey to uh, working for NASA. Please welcome to the program, former Air Force extraordinaire. I don't even know what you finished as. I knew you as a sergeant, um, <laughs> but uh, Air Force disc jockey extraordinaire, Jim Mason Foley. Jim, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, Jerry. It's an introduction that is uh, not nearly deserved, uh, but I appreciate the kind words, and it's uh, my honor and pleasure to join you. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I've written and I've talked about it on the on the show that uh, one of the reasons I host this podcast is because I miss doing radio, and the only time I've done radio professionally is when we worked together at MBS Keflavik Iceland, and I don't know how you did it, and I don't think you did anything else there but radio. I don't think you had to do a tour in any other department. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the morning drive disc jockey on NBS Keflavik Iceland uh, for a couple of years, and you were really good at it. Well, I, I appreciate it, and and you're right. Uh, I did moonlight a bit as uh, a director of the nightly news program, if you remember that, our 30-minute live news program. So uh, I really uh, enjoyed the directing aspect of the TV news. Didn't like the camera because, as we like to say in radio, I have a face for radio. <laughs> um, so I, I really love my radio time. Um, it's a job that I'll never forget. It was my favorite job on the planet. Uh, but I did enjoy directing the evening newscast. So I did do that. Uh, I moonlighted there for a little bit. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting because most of us had to go through each department. I started as a TV board operator. I finished as the assistant TV programming director, but I always hosted the sports talk show, and I'll talk about that here in a second because that was your baby. Um, but we, you know, we did everything. We did weather. We did news. We were field reporters. We anchored. We were disc jockeys. We were talk show hosts. But we also as you said, directed, we ran the Chiron, as they call it today, the, the yes. character generator, the videotape machine. Um, we did a little bit of everything at that station, and we were damn good at it, We and we had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, we, we did. We, we worked with a lot of good people, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, um, I spent 12 years in the Air Force. I loved every day of my service in the Air Force, I loved every day. Um, in my favorite two years, we're working with my uh, Navy brothers and sisters in Keflavik, Iceland. It was a glorious two years of our uh, tour. And I say our because my daughter and my wife uh, certainly served with me there. And, um, you know, some of my best friends in the military came from that island. And uh, I, I fondly recall those two years very, very much. Yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, there was just it's almost like we weren't even in the military at that, at, at, during that time. Right. It's, it's um, because we got to do things that most people in the military don't get to do. We were exactly radio, right. Yeah. We were radio and TV personalities. We got recognized when we were out and about um, and uh, we were kind of quasi celebrities. We get to do a lot of fun stuff. We get to spin records and get paid for it. Um, do things like the, uh, like the media thon, 
which is, uh, you know, I'm still not sure if I ever recovered from those things. Right. Uh, and, and the crazy music we used to have to play is we used to take donations for uh, the uh, Navy Marine Corps relief. And mm-hmm. you could, you could, whoever donated or pledged the most uh, got their song at the, was at the top three at the top of the hour. And back then there was some stuff like crisscross and some other groups that were really, really popular at the time. And exactly. Oh my gosh. I'll never forget those. You, you know what? For a small community, um, we really did raise a lot of money and people had the best attitudes about it. Um, and they really played along really well. And it was that media thon was just killer. I mean, we did our thing on the radio, the TV did their thing on the TV side and it really worked well. Yeah, we we had a lot of fun with it too, and and we didn't take ourselves seriously, and and, and we had a, a great time doing it, and uh, did a lot of silly things. The other thing too is we did a lot of uh, public service announcements because we couldn't do commercials, so so we spent a lot of time in the production studio creating spots, and and we used to type up the 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 cards for the stuff we would read on the air, and you know mm-hmm. that you know I, it was a miniature city in Keflavik, don't you think? Yeah, it was. It, it, I ran across a an old cassette um, of a radio show that uh, I had done that I recorded. Um, I'm sure back in the day it was to submit for an award that I never won. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, I, there was a, a spot that I did, a 30-second spot about the USO. And, um, you know, of course, when we're working, uh, we didn't have the uh, big stats that uh, people think of a TV outlet or a radio outlet, you know, you're just on the board yourself. And in between your live shows, you, uh, you know, had to produce a spot. Well, you try to be creative. And uh, so I wrote a USO spot, 30 second spot. And in the, there were two characters in it. And I worked all night about how to change my voice enough to where it would be believable. (laughs) So I could just do both voices instead of leaving uh, the script there for someone else to voice at night, then I could pick it up the next day. I just wanted to cut it myself. And you know what? I, I have to admit that I, I listened back to it 30 years later. And I didn't do a half bad job. It was actually <laughs> believable. I, I got a kick out of it. And it was, it was pretty cool. Well, I used to to speed stuff up and slow stuff down. The there intro, you go. The intro I did for After Midnight for my, you know, for my shift for it, I did a lot of that, right? Speed it up, slow it down so you could change your voice and that kind of thing. Uh, I wanted uh, to, I wanted to get into into talking about sports talk for a minute because you know when we're kids especially those of us a certain age aside from like play-by-play announcers you never know what jobs there are in sports right even the teams you have no idea you know there's a head coach you know you don't even know there's a coordinator in the 70s they didn't even talk about them and right right so you have no idea as you as a kid like if i don't make it as a player I'm never going to make it to the league. I'm not going to, uh, you know, be a pro athlete. So I'm not going to work in sports. You have no idea that the jobs that are, that are out there. And you created a program called sports talk at, at a time when stateside sports talk radio started to explode in the early nineties, right? The, the right. gym, the Jim Rome's and, and people like that were, were just cutting their teeth and becoming what they are today. And you had this idea to have this show and you had this crazy idea 
have me on it every once in a while so I could stink the place up and, and not know <laughs> what conference, which teams were in in college football and, and just basically sit there like an idiot. Um, and then, you know, when it came time for you to transfer for whatever crazy reason, you decided to say, Hey Jerry, host my show. Well, yeah, it, I have fond memories of that. So you may not know this. As a matter of fact, I bet you don't. But the origin of that show actually took place uh, about four years earlier at um, Lodges Airfield in the Azores. And it's another tri-service base, uh, Army, Navy, um, Air Force. And um, I used to, I didn't have a talk show uh, for Sports Talk, but I did a character called Jimmy the Freak. Now, if you know your sports history, you'll know that that was modeled after Jimmy the Greek from CBS um, NFL Today show. Yes, sir. And uh, so I did, you know, I tried to, you know, be all cool and have this big character, you know, and go on uh, the radio and and make my sports predictions. Um, So I I could not get a sports talk show there, but uh, I give all the credit to Warrant Officer Tom Jones, Mr. Jones. And me sat down and uh, I talked about his sports talk show once a week, just for an hour, uh, because there are a lot of sports fans. And I thought that there was some um, traction that we could get there with some listenership. And you know what? I'll give him credit. No one else in the military I work with um, gave me any credit for that thought. He supported it. And it ended up being a pretty good show, some pretty decent followership. And if you remember... We did do live call-ins, which was crazy because we didn't have the eight-second delay or anything. Um, and sports can get people's. I, know, had to, I, get, had to, I had to cut some people rowdy, off, right? And uh, but he supported it. We did call-in. We did an hour, and it was a blast. Um, I really was a blast. Absolutely, and you know, it it was the only sports talk radio show in Armed Forces Radio, and I don't know if anybody else. Uh, outside of Keflavik, uh, did anything similar. And, you know, what was great was you asked me to host it. I took over. And one of the first things I did was was dive into preparation, right? Because I had made a fool of yes. myself enough times when you were hosting. Oh, my gosh. You, yeah, when you, I, uh, there's a specific scenario, and I didn't know if you'd remember it. Um, and and uh, it was about the Pittsburgh Penguins. And um, it, it was it – was, you know what? We were all learning and, and I was by no means perfect at anything. And back in the day, um, information uh, was scarce. Of course, we didn't have uh, the Internet available at our fingertips to just look something up. Uh, we didn't have satellite radio beaming into us about sports talk 24-7. What we relied on were two things, primarily. Um, periodicals that we could get our hands on either at the uh, BX on base or the shop at or through the mail or the teletype system. And boy, don't you love the teletype system. I was system. just going to get into that, right? right? So so, and, yeah. uh, so that's how we assembled our information. Yep. And uh, so a lot of the times we went into a show really not having the latest and greatest, but we did the best we could and I thought we put on a good show. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and one of the things that I did for prep I used to ask everybody who worked in the radio department, save all the sports off the teletype 
whether you know whether you're going to stick it on the peg or not, save it. And what I would do at the end of the, the show was on Friday. I would like on Thursday night take all the teletype from anything sports related and I'd put it in a garbage bag. And I would take it home. <laughs> nice. And, and then I would sit there at the dining room table with all and I would organize it by date and then I would make copious notes from the teletype. Mm-hmm. And then um about an hour before the show, Pat Malone and uh, Captain Captain Raymond, who we called Sid, who eventually joined me as the panel on the show, um, I would brief them, and I would share with them the notes, and then we would go on the on the air, and we would we would all be working from the same set of notes, same bit of information. And I remember you called in to check in on your baby one time. <laughs> and we had the week before we had missed a note about Patrick Ewing. There was an injury or something that we did not know about. Cause the other place we tried to get info was the USA today. Right. We still, we, right. we had been getting, Oh was, yes. Yeah. Yes. Good resource. Yep. And we had missed this note about Patrick Ewing and you had called in and, and we were talking about it and, and Ewing had gotten hurt. And, you know, it was funny because this is how I, I learned to, to cut my teeth on sports coverage. Right. And, whether it was the NBA draft and we're sitting there trying to figure out how to pronounce George Mirasan's name when the, when the then Washington right. bullets drafted him to all this other stuff. We, we ended up getting Pat through his connections. We ended up getting all these celebrity interviews. We had Mel Kiper jr. We had Joe Theismann. We had Van Earl Wright. And I'm going to get into him in a minute. Cause I want to talk to you about, um, the state of, of sports coverage on television, which started what we see today started when we were in Iceland. Um, and, and all these different guests we would have on. And because I don't know how Pat did it, but he would get us these celebrity guests. And again, back to warrant officer, Tom Jones, he supported it, paid the phone bill, didn't care. Yeah. Let it, you know, exactly. As long as it wasn't every week, right. As long as it wasn't every right. week, uh, we could, we could do that. And, um, it, taught me how to be a talk show host really um and you know i've done it uh off and on throughout my career at uh, different venues um different arenas whether it be a podcast or uh, a web video program something um doing that show taught me to be a talk show host the other thing that it taught me and i and i will go to my grave thanking you not that i want this show to be the mutual admiration society but that <laughs> that I could have a career in sports, right? That there was something I could do in sports, maybe not play-by-play, even though I did a little bit of that in Iceland as well with the NATO Iceland basketball tournament. I could do something in sports. And then through Pat, I end up moonlighting for a newspaper covering the then Baltimore Stallions Canadian football team. Oh, outstanding. Yeah. And a friend of his had put together this little newspaper called Baltimore Football Weekly. And the year they win the Grey Cup, I'm one of the the beat writers. I'm one of the staff writers. And And, and there's your trivia question because it's the only team to ever win the Grey Cup stationed in the United States. Absolutely. And it's the oldest sports championship in North America, the Grey Cup. And so then eventually I end up landing with the then Oakland Raiders and spent 20 years working for a professional football team uh, in a job that didn't exist when you and I worked together because it was all. Yeah. Now see that's rock star status to me actually working for, um, which ended up, if I'm not correct, 
uh, your favorite team, right? You ended up 100% landing a gig with your favorite team. And I just can't imagine how cool that was. It was the dream job. It was something I never thought could happen and let alone to be able to do it for, for 20 years. Uh, 17 of that in digital media, three is the, uh, the team historian. And, you know, I got to write, I got to host a podcast. I got to, to do all kinds of stuff, take pictures, shoot video, you name it from everything that we learned, Jim, in, in Dinfos and, right. and in Iceland, everything that we learned as, you know, whatever they call them now. Um, but as, as military journalists, that's, I used every last bit of it, every bit of it. Yeah. I'll give the military a lot of credit. The Defense Information School, where we learn how to be disc jockeys and TV anchormen and and uh, uh, photojournalism and all that stuff, they they did a great job of giving you a base to work with that we were able to grow upon once we got out into the field. Yeah, one hundred percent. And you know, you you alluded to it, but I'll I'll go even further. Right, the friendships. Right, a lot of us kind of drifted apart. Thankfully, due to social media, a lot of us have come back together. Uh, you know, you know, you as a frequent listener of the show know that Chris Ingalls makes a, a monthly appearance. Yes, uh, from Boston, um, we were able to get together uh, about uh, five years ago in Washington D.C. Me, you, Pat Malone, Dave Sawyer, and uh, at uh, Fireworks Pizza there in Alexandria, Virginia. Some of the best pizza mm-hmm. and craft beer on the planet, by the way. Shameless plug. Yep. Good night. It was, was a great a, night. Sure was. And, you know, but if you kind of go back and look at it, you know, you look at some of the folks that either we're still on the fringe with or we're still close to, you know, there's a lot of folks. I mean, I keep, I see Mark Boyd pops up every once in a while, Rich Gearhart, uh, still uh, at least exchange Facebook uh, missives with him uh, on occasion. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of us that were stationed there together that are still talking to each other in some way, shape or form. And yeah. Cause not only do we, yeah. And not only do we work cause we work so closely together, but we also socialize together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rich Gearhart, uh, me and him, uh, swap a lot of, you know, uh, you know, uh, posts on Facebook, checking up on each other, you know, him and his wife, Linda were great mentors for me and my uh, wife, Joe and our daughter, Casey, they had kids about the same age. And, uh, we were always at the Gearhart's house, just, you know, hanging out. And, um, you know, just being a big family. And um, there were just a lot of great people there, a lot of fond memories. Mr. Jones, Frank Pratt, uh, Chris Singles, you, um, Bob Everdeen, all these people, Bob Everdeen, um, Susan Smith. Uh, You can go on and on. And it was just a great group of people to work with. And, And, you know, the proudest thing I take from that two years other than hearing that, you know, I helped you out with your career and that, trust me, I'm very humbled by that. Um, that was a place where basically I was, you know, told, Hey Jim, you know, two years here, you work with us, you're an honorary squid. And, uh, there's no better thing that could have been told to me, uh, than that statement right there. I, I, I loved it. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely count you among the among the squids. I mean, we even even guys like Chris Beckwith who came up for like a year and he had come from Air Force News and you know, we had all kinds of guys and 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 women who came through and all all top notch. Once they learned whatever they needed to learn like the equipment, 
everything else for them was was you know the personality and the delivery and everything else. Everybody was was good at they what they did, right? It, yes. it, it wasn't a yes. case where we we had people you didn't want to put on the air, and and well, there might have been one. We won't get into that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, you know everybody took their job seriously, but we all had fun doing it because is when you do radio and television, how can you not have fun when you're, when you're behind a microphone talking to exactly. people, right? And again, that, exactly. that base was such a tight knit community and it did help. We were the only game in town unless you wanted to watch late night Skoda racing. Um, but yeah, right. yeah. And you know, the, the thing about radio is, and a lot of people um, don't understand it until you tell them and then they think, Oh wow. Wow. That's crazy. But you know, how many jobs on the planet where you go to work and you have a few thousand people critique your work on a daily basis, daily basis. Um, you know, during your radio show? And it's just nutty to think about it. Um, you know, you should be scared crazy. And but uh, I always got a kick out of it. Um, you know what? If we made a blunder either on sports talk or during the morning show, you just, you know, write it up, move on and and, you know, have at it on another day. So. Um, it's just nuts. Yep. And I had the pleasure of hosting two different shows other than, uh, sports talk. So after midnight was the show we could almost do anything we wanted. Jamie Salafi took that to another level. Um, and that was the most fun show, right? Because you're, you're talking airplane mechanics through the night. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I hosted vintage vinyl rock and it was an hour. That was the midday show. And, uh, it was only an hour, but you know, I learned a lot of music. I learned a lot of music because after midnight, I just played what I wanted. Right. So I was into alt rock and, and techno and all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, Chris and I joke all the time that we programmed it like it was a college station. Um, but the, you know, vintage vinyl rock, you had to stay on brand. You had to stay on genre. And I learned a lot about classic rock hosting that show. Yeah, see, that was my superpower in music, right? It was the uh, classic rock, seventies, uh, eighties, heavy metal, that kind of thing. That was my uh, genre of music that I loved. And uh, that was all a good time. And I even remember, and we don't need to get into it a whole lot, but, you know, I basically, for the lack of a better way of saying this, founded an Icelandic metal band called Exist. And, um, you know, we did a (laughs) weekly show, um, you know, with the local music Uh and uh, we brought them on bass. They did a gig on bass. And after they did the gig on bass, they actually got more, uh, coverage in Reykjavik and started doing club tours and stuff. And and the bad thing about Exist, I mean, I love their music. It was right in my wheelhouse. They were about 10 years too late because mm. it was more 70 or late 70s, early 80s hair metal kind of sound right. to it. And uh, this was the early 90s, of course, and grunge was just hitting it big. And uh, so they were probably about 10 years too late, but they were fabulous. And musicians. some of us had moved on to the Sugar Cubes and Bjork by that point. So Right, you know, exactly. When you talk Icelandic music, Terry Welch and I actually saw Bjork uh, live in concert. Uh, he and I went and uh, had a grand old time. She did the whole show on Icelandic. It was fabulous. Wow. Yep. See, such, such great memories, right? So mm-hmm. now after you left Iceland, where did you go? What did you do? Okay, so um, after I had left Iceland in 93, I only spent two more years in the military. It was at Andrews Air Force Base, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. I did the two years in the public affairs office. And quite honestly, even though we wanted to stay in, um, 
you know, at that time, it just wasn't working out for the family. So we decided to get out. It was a tough decision, but that was my last tour. And uh, we ended up staying in Maryland. I worked downtown D.C. Uh, at a job at a trade association for a bit in their PA shop. And uh, then we moved to what we call the Eastern Shore. Uh, I built uh, uh, motor yachts for a time, not personally built them, but I was part of a fabrication team. And uh, then um, in 2001, I uh, found a job at Wallops Flight Facility and been there since. You know, it's funny is I was at the Washington Navy Yard after Iceland. So we were probably right down the street from each other and didn't even know it. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So that was my next assignment was Naval Aviation News Magazine at the Washington Navy Yard. And uh, I was there when our uh, chief of uh, naval operations uh, decided to end his own life. And, uh, you know, oh, good grief. Yeah. And, uh, sorry yeah, to hear that. Yeah. He was a great guy and, you know, well liked. And, and it was funny because it was Pat Malone who, cause he was working for SecDef at the time who called me at the office to let me know that, um, that the Admiral had died. But, and I'm like finding out before anybody else. And I felt really, really weird about it. Um, just a very, very strange military memory, right? It just, um, yeah. Right. Um, so I joke about this, right. And, and you called me out on Facebook when I was promoting your appearance on the show tonight. Um, I said, you know, let's find out how <laughs> Jim Mason Foley goes from disc jockey to rocket scientist. You said, no, no, no rocket scientist. No, it's too strong. What the hell do you do? Okay. So, um, I, I am not a rocket scientist, but I work with them. So what I currently do I work for a great company called uh, ASRC Federal. It's an Alaskan native company. So uh, uh, we're not publicly traded, but we do have shareholders, and they're, not, they're all Inupiat um, Native Americans uh, from Alaska. So it, it's an outstanding company, outstanding job. And I am what they call a program manager, and what I manage is an engineering services contract. So, you know, we have electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, software engineers, things of that nature. And uh, we provide services to NASA at Wallops Flight Facility, which is right on the uh, Atlantic Ocean in Virginia. And uh, I manage that contract for this company. So Jim Mason Foley, rocket scientist. That's my story. It, it, you know, I'm it's a loose, to it. yeah. It, it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I no, think, it, I think it's you, great. You, you, you'll not fly far if you're relying on me to, uh, you know, provide the science uh, for your vehicle. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, it's a great place to work. I've been there uh, for 21 years now. I've been with ASRC Federal for the past five. It, it's an outstanding job, an outstanding place to work. And NASA, you know, is just cool. Oh, um, yeah. It just is. And um, so I really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I hope to be there for quite some time. Yeah, no, it sounds like a, a fascinating uh, organization and, and occupation. And, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. And, and, you know, I have a lot of mixed feelings about the current billionaire space race, but it does seem like certain individuals have reignited an interest in space travel and space exploration that, you know, we've been missing for a while, right? And kind of space shuttle launches seem to, to become, you know, uh, every other week and we became desensitized to them and you know the shock and awe was gone but now you have the bezos's and musks and 
and Branson's of the world shooting themselves Branson's off of the world. Yeah. Right. But it seems it's like it's a little different than what we're used to. Um, you know, I'm an old school guy, so to speak. So, um, you know, some of that, uh, stuff, sometimes I look at as more, you know, not serious science and not serious exploration. It's more tourism, you know, which is a fine, there's a market for that. Uh, but just to tell you something really cool, cooler than me being a, a program manager for an engineering contract, uh, my boss's boss is uh, an astronaut, retired astronaut named Scooter Altman. Uh, he commanded uh, multiple um, space shuttle missions himself, and um, he was also the pilot in the movie 20-some years ago for Top Gun. He was the actual pilot that uh, flew the F-14 Tomcat in that movie. So, you know, Scooter's a rock star. Uh, we all love him, and, and um, that's like my biggest claim to fame is working for that guy. That's freaking awesome. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. I was joking about it after last week's show because I have interviewed four-star generals and admirals, pro football Hall of Famers. I've met, you know, the Barry Bonses of the world. Um, you know, I've, I've met Joe Morgan on more than one occasion, um, near and dear to your Cincinnati Reds. Um, exactly. Right? And last week I had my first Grammy Award winner on on the program the first time in my entire life and career i interviewed somebody who won a grammy award and you get to I, I listen to that program that's pretty cool yeah and and wands is is a great guy and uh it's just really interesting how the whole thing was like serendipity right it was almost by accident and everything happened for a thrift shop well you get to know an astronaut that's freaking yeah, it, awesome you know the best thing about scooter is this if you met him you could talk to him for an hour and never know he was an astronaut, never know he was the pilot in Top Gun. He's the most humble man you'll ever meet. Um, he's just a great human being. And But when you do get him into the spacecraft stories and the space flight stories, you can listen to him for hours and hours and hours because it's just the most fascinating subject there is. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think it takes a lot of, a lot of stones to strap a rocket to your ass and shoot yourself into space. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, is something that, you know, and, and okay. So I posed this question to him. Um, I asked him, I said, Scooter, you know, there's a line to be the first pilot to go to Mars. And he goes, Oh, I'm in front of it. Front of, I, I don't even know if I got the question out of my mouth. <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm in front of the line. He, I, I'm in. And that's the kind of man he is. And, um, I asked him, you know, how you got into uh, being an astronaut and he, Said ever since he was a kid, he, you know, loved to go fast. And, you know, it went from cars to planes. And then, you know, what's faster than a plane? Well, a rocket ship. Right. And uh, that's how he got into it. So it's just, uh, again, it's just a fascinating career. It's a fascinating um, program to support uh, for our NASA folks because, you know, it's just cool. Oh, um, absolutely. Space is so fascinating. You know, when you start talking galaxies and planets and, and life beyond our own planet, it's just fascinating when you start looking at the facts, um, how big the universe is, how many billions of galaxies there are. It's just crazy to talk about. And I, I can just listen to it all day long. Yeah, it's uh, definitely something that, you know, 
we've all been interested in since we were kids or found fascinating. And what I think is neat is when we launch new exploratory craft into space, right? These, the probes and telescopes and, mm-hmm. you know, when they finally fixed Hubble, the imagery that we got back from Hubble, this new telescope that that's uh, going to be coming online uh, that just launched recently. I, I think, yeah, you know, James Webb. Yeah. I think all of that is, is absolutely fascinating. And the more we can learn, uh, you know, about the universe, the better off we're going to be. I don't think we're going to, in our lifetime, solve a lot of mysteries, you know, of cosmology, but it, it, I watch all kinds of documentaries that I can find, you know, uh, how the universe works and stuff like that. And, find it really really fascinating one of the things i forgot jim at the top of the show in your intro is uh that you were a pretty good uh arena football quarterback i i you know uh i loved that concept it was the only place in the military where we played it and i thought it was brilliant and and for your listeners basically what uh the navy did was uh, we had a, a gymnasium that basically had two basketball courts end to end, right? So it was a pretty big gymnasium. And uh, so what they would do, it was they would just parcel up the entire gymnasium. You would have four people on a team and uh, you played basically what amounted to arena football. Now it wasn't tackle. It was, uh, it, it, was it, really, it wasn't even two hand touch. No, it was flag. flag. We, we had flags. It, oh, it, it was flag. Okay. Yeah. My memory's poor. Um, but you know, when you completed a pass, you couldn't advance it by running it, you know, ball was dead right there. And I loved that game. Oh, we had a blast. We had a great time. I don't know how many, how many games we played in a day. It had to be like four. And, uh, you know, back in, back in the days when I smoked a pack a day and, you know, was winded after, (laughs) after two pass routes, but no, you really enjoyed it. Uh, you were, (laughs) you took to playing quarterback in that tournament. No, I did. You see, yeah, that, that kind of fit my personality. I always kind of wanted to be out front. Oh, and, yeah. Um, you know, that kind of fit my personality. And, and we just had a ball. Didn't and, we? You know, we, hey, we didn't win, we didn't win the, uh, the uh, championship on the base, but we had a good time, and, and that was a lot of fun. And I never played that game again because it was the only location on the planet where that ever took place. And I thought that game was brilliant. Yep, because my next assignment, we just played regular flag football, which we did mm-hmm. in Iceland, right? That was one, I mean, I don't mean to cut off the, the science and the, the space discussion, because we could talk about that for days, but just kind of going back right. to Iceland for a minute, one of the things that I loved about that environment was the sporting environment for us on the base. We had everything. Mm-hmm. We had volleyball, basketball, softball, flag football, you name it. I mean, there was a golf team for crying out loud. Um, mm-hmm. they, we had everything. Navy did a real good job up there understanding that, you know, even though Iceland had its huge bonuses to it, right. Um, you know, half the year it's basically sunlight, right? You're in the summertime and the sun virtually never sets, but that means in the winter time, the sun is not above the horizon very often. And the Navy did a great job of providing that off-duty entertainment that uh, people could, you know, get involved with, families could play together after work, and they didn't let the uh, sun always being below the horizon affect them very much. They did a great job with that. Yeah, MWR, Morale, Welfare, and Recreation, had a great athletic program, and 
Um, they always had an athletic director in place that that always had some some good things going. The the bowling alley was stupid popular, and uh, we mm-hmm. al- we always had like you said we always had something to do, or we were always at Sue Smith's house on a Friday night. Yeah, you know, and and her husband uh, Wes, uh, he was on our you know arena team. Yeah, if you recall, sure uh, Wes was a really big, tall dude. So you know, all I had to do was throw the ball about eight feet in the air. And Wes was there because he was taller than most people. Um, that, that's great. We're, we're friends on Facebook as well. We were able to hook up on Facebook. And, 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 you know, not to get off track, but, you know, I know social media takes a bath with uh, all the things that are negative about social media. But I'll always say that the thing that I love about social media, and I'm really only a Facebook guy. I, I don't get into the other ones much. Uh, but it allows people like us, you know, friends for 30 years, but haven't seen each other for 28 years to be able to get back together, catch up, you know, and, and that's the brilliant thing about social media. Yeah, I agree. 100%. And so let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the the thing that, uh, that helped make us friends in the first place, which is the, the world of sports. And I know you're, you know, originally from Ohio, you're a big Buckeyes fan. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we all trade our, our, uh, barbs on Facebook about, this sporting event, that sporting event. And, you know, it's interesting to look at kind of the college football landscape right now and look at that transfer portal, right? Which when we were, when we were forming our adult opinions about college football, if you transferred, you had to sit out a year, right? It cost you a year of eligibility and, and only a few big name guys actually transferred and made anything out of themselves. Russell Wilson being one of them. And, exactly. And now you go into this transfer portal and it's almost as bad as NFL free agency. It's getting there. And, and I'll be honest, you know, again, you know, we're older guys. And uh, so these new rules are kind of odd to us and, and it probably creates an environment where cheating is going to become even more rampant. I mean, you know, as well as I do uh, and no need to, call them out, but there's a particular team in college football that um, teams in their own conference has been called out for having a, you know, a name image likeness slush fund to pay players to get them to play there. Well, you know, just a few years ago, that would put you on death's door with the NCAA. And now it's kind of like, well, it's all accepted now. Um, So it really is like free agency. I really don't like it much, but I'll say this. If the NCAA had done a better job over the course of the last, say, 10, 15, even 20 years of allowing these athletes to make a buck or to have a dollar to their name, maybe we wouldn't be here today. A lot of these students, and I'm not talking Ohio State and Alabama and USC, those you know student athletes are pretty taken care of if you're a basketball or a football player. I'm talking about you know, women's softball or, you know, women's uh, basketball or, you know, men's baseball, whatever the, the, you know, traditional sports that don't make a lot of money. If the NCAA had allowed these kids to have, you know, a job at the, you know, campus movie theater or something like that, maybe we wouldn't be here today. I don't mind these kids, you know, making a buck. Uh, Good Lord knows the NCAA makes billions uh, with the products that they have through the, um, you know, basketball and football. 
So even though I don't really like the direction it's heading, I don't mind these kids making a dollar. And see, that's the argument, right? Because the college sports landscape that we grew up on, it was drilled into our heads that, hey, they're getting a free education and that should be Mm -hmm. worth it. It should be enough um, compensation uh, for them to play college sports. And over the years, that has become a really, really dark, twisted joke. Because of what you just said, that these schools are making billions of dollars off the back of these student athletes and the the kids aren't aren't making any money. So I don't that part is, you know, I I have to get my old head out of it and say, okay, this is a good thing. But it's it's that transfer portal. I can't wrap my head around and I had it explained to me recently and I and I get it. But it part of the problem is you have these, these almost celebrity coaches, right? And they'll go from one school to the next. You got a bunch of kids that committed to play for somebody at say Oklahoma. And now that guy's at USC. Well, I'm, I don't want to play at Oklahoma. I I came here because of him. There's no other reason to be in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, Let me go somewhere else. And now you have all these guys bouncing around top tier quarterbacks, guys who could be top 10 NFL draft picks eventually are, are changing schools. Um, like like crazy and it's actually it's more like baseball free agency i can't keep up with it it really is and the one thing that you know guys our age need to understand is that you know 30 years ago a top high school player wanted to play for the scarlet and gray or the maize and blue or whatever today they want to play for ryan day or lincoln riley or nick saban They're not playing for the colors of the school they're going to. They're playing for the coach who they think can best set them up for a career in professional ball. And that's fine. It's just that that's the change. They don't play for the college anymore. They play for the coach. Right. And, you know, because there's no other reason to live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, other than that path to the NFL. Because I keep sitting there going, why do these top, top, tier kids keep going to Alabama. There's no reason to go there because it's a path to the NFL. But you Exactly. Look- and, and I don't blame them for that. Uh, I mean, they, they have a laser focus on, you know, their career and, and they should have. Uh, but at the same time, it is different. They're not playing for the college. They're playing for the coach. And if Nick Saban went to Memphis, they would all play for Memphis because they know Nick Saban's track record is what it is. It's great. And uh, he's the coach that can best set you up for the next level. Right. And you kind of look at, at some of the opposite that's happened in college basketball. You look at Syracuse, and I'm a huge Syracuse fan. Nobody wants to go suffer the winners in central New York and play for Jim Beheim anymore. Since they joined the ACC, the old Big East is gone. Now, why would right. I go suffer the winters in Syracuse and play this antiquated system, even though it, the 2-3 zone still works, play this gimmicky defense when I can go play for Duke, North Carolina, or any of these other places that are in warm weather and get to the NBA just as easily, or if not, you know, one, I can go one and done, and, and, you know, next thing you know, I'm, I'm a top five pick. I'm a lottery pick in the NBA. I can go to Oklahoma State. I can go to Baylor. I can go to any of those schools. I don't have to go play for Jim Beheim. There's no allure there anymore. Yeah, I mean – High school kids want to go play above the rim. They want to isolate one-on-one. You know, that's fun. 
Um, you know, a two, three zone, uh, defensively is a snore. Uh, and, and then a zone playing more basketball, more on offense is even more of a snore because you're just waiting for the jump shot with the guy that's open and it can take 30 seconds to materialize. And the kids just really want to play that up and down above the rim isolation basketball. And again, that's more fun, hard to blame them, but you're right. The coaches need to evolve too. And, you know, a great school like Syracuse with all that history in basketball, it's kind of the game today is kind of leaving them behind a little bit. Yeah, and it was funny. I, I said this the other day because, you know, two of Bayheim's sons are on this year's team. And I said, you know, they've gone from competing for national titles, conference titles, and now it's just daddy daycare. <laughs> right. Hey, I got a laugh out of you. Um <laughs> so, so we were talking about social media and, and Facebook and that kind of thing. And I, and I know, you know, uh, politically, you know, where your values are and, and, uh, the, the flip side to that is you're also grounded in reality, which has become kind of a, a double, double edged sword for, you know, for me as an ex conservative and you as a conflicted one. Um, right. You know, you started this great group on Facebook called Polititalk, uh, in, invite only. So don't go flooding it. Um, where, you know, it, I don't like the term, but it is a safe space for people, you know, friends and acquaintances to come and engage in political discourse. And, and like we were talking off air, um, you know, have, if you have a take, back it up with, with fact exist on this plane of reality with the rest of us. And we'll talk about anything. And what I like about it, (laughs) exactly. You know, and that's what I like about it is, is, you know, we can go in there and we can say, Hey, look, Trump's an idiot. Well, Okay, why do you say he's an idiot? You come in and you say, because he did this, this, and this. And same thing, look, if if I found fault with the, with a Democrat at this point, and I felt strongly enough to say something about it, I, I would do that, right? And I and I agree. So, you know, my, my history is center-right. That's where I kind of find myself politically. I'm kind of, I'm a big centrist, and but I lean right. Um but I have to admit that uh, I wasn't a fan of the Trump administration. Um, I don't think he carried himself well. I thought he should have never been elected. I thought what he did to uh, John McCain was criminal. And um, I honestly don't understand how any uh, military veteran could support that. Uh, John McCain is a national hero, a national treasure. Um, and all of us could look up to him uh, for what he went through and the sacrifices he made. Um, but at the same time, I'll be fair, you know, and, um, I used to post a few things on Facebook in the, uh, news feed. Uh, that was never crazy alt left or alt right or anything, just my two pennies about something. And the responses I got were just crazy, mm-hmm. uh, both left and right. And, uh, so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to create a, a group. Call it Polititalk. Uh, and the rules were simple. Um, this is uh, the discourse is to be, you know, friendly and professional. Uh, there's no name calling. There's no you're an idiot for thinking this or anything like that. If you have an opinion, all you got to do is bring any kind of accredited information for the ride. You know, hey, even if you believe in a conspiracy theory, throw it out there. But, you know, have a source that's credible. Um you know, that supports that. So we can have some discussion because I have no problem 
you know, telling someone, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, no problem at all. But I just didn't want to keep getting into the crazy arguments on Facebook, which is why I wanted to go to PolitiTalk. And anybody's welcome. Uh, but if you do want to be a, you know, member of the group, you, you got to someone's got to vouch for you. You know, I just don't want to let anyone in because I want to know who you are and we can have any discussion you want. You know, and, and I and I really appreciate that you did that. Right. Because I was experiencing a lot of the same thing. A lot of my takes, I was getting shot down or shouted down, not shot down, shouted down. I was getting into it with people and, and, you know, I ended up in Facebook jail for 24 hours because somebody misunderstood something I said. So, you know, it was great to have that place to go. And if you've listened, if you listen to any of our, our shows, me and Chris during the Trump administration, you could hear how frustrated we were. And how angry we were. And yeah. a, a lot of our conversations centered around the incompetence of the administration and, and, and a lot of the policies that were just off the rails because, you know, look, I'm, for years we all said it, even, even when I was a card-carrying Republican, we all said it. Let's get an outsider. Let's get somebody to shake it up. Well, you got the wrong one. And yeah, I, I agree with that. I never thought he was a good candidate. Um, you know, quite honestly, uh, I thought the 2016 race um, had the two worst candidates in American history, you know, running against each other. Um, but that's the choice we had to make. Uh, my choice was neither. Um, people will say I threw my vote away. OK, well, that's your opinion. Um, I just couldn't see supporting either one. Um some of the things that I, I thought was most dangerous uh, was not supporting NATO. Um, you know, NATO is the primary organization that's prevented World War III. Um, it just is. And uh, I thought that was a big deal. So, you know, I, I'm kind of hoping that um, the near future allows our two political parties to, you know, have some professional, friendly discourse to, you know, come up with solutions for issues that we have in our country. Um, I really miss the days of Ronald Reagan uh, in my lifetime. I feel he's the best president we ever had. Um, and I just miss the days where him and Tip O'Neill, uh, for those folks who don't know, Tip O'Neill was a Speaker of the House for a long time. And they would get together and kind of hash out their differences. And then Reagan would go to the Republicans and tip to the Democrats. And we would, you know, find some common ground and we would move forward. And I miss those days. And, you know, I just think um, our politics are too, um, you know, polarizing right now and, and we're having a hard time getting together. Um, and it's just a shame because our country is a great country for all of us who served. We know that. Um, and and it, I just, it's upsetting to me that we're in this position we're in because, you know, this country's big enough to where, we're welcoming to all and all the ideas and we should be able to come together, find some common ground and uh, succeed. And sometimes I think we fall short of that. Yeah. And I think, I think some of it all, all has to do with this, this individualism, right? We've, we've lost sight of the greater good, you know, and, and, you know, the other thing that I find too is people are different on social media than they are in person. 
And it, it's really interesting. Well, to, that's true. Yeah. To, yeah. To see the keyboard warriors or, or people, the just the way they vote, but the, the way they are to you, to your face is totally different. They're, they're normal, rational human beings to your face, but put them behind a keyboard or smartphone and they turn into some kind of, you know, rage monster uh, that's worried that the Southern border is being overrun by Mexicans. I, you know, I, I, I have a hard time reconciling almost this Jekyll and Hyde nature of, of some folks. Some of these folks have exposed themselves. That's been the good thing about all of this, right? The, the extremists, right? Yeah. The extremists have, have really put themselves out there. We know who you are. Um, and it just, you know, one of the reasons this season of the, the get the knack podcast, I really made a conscious decision to not really dive into politics because it was so stressful for four years. And I, and politics can be stressful. It really can. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, and, and, you know, some of us, you know, we, we can look at a topic like immigration and I can understand um, that immigration, you know, needs to be, you know, regulated and controlled and, um, you know, the right way. Uh, but at the same time, what was happening the uh, from 2016 to 2020, I, I personally found offensive. Um, you know, there's a better way of, you know, regulating in a lawful way, proper legal immigration. But there's also a way to do that with a human heart and kindness. And um, I, I think we need to come together on a topic like that because, you know, no matter where you're born on this planet, you're a human being and um, you're a part of us and we can at least treat you with dignity and respect. Yep. And everybody, every individual has a story, right? Everybody has a reason for their motivations, why they want to do something or go somewhere. Um, my, my thing is this with immigration, like you said, I agree with you a hundred percent. My argument is I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I don't know what the solution oh, oh. is, right? Nobody does. Right there with you. Right? Exactly. Right They're, there with you. And that's, why, and that's why what we would term the smart people, the people in the know, really do need to sit down and hammer out agreements instead of walking away from a discussion with these talking points they take to the alt-left and alt-right news media. Yeah. Um, it does no good. Mm -mm. Um Yes, immigration is a serious issue. It's also a human issue. And there's an answer out there. And, and if we could just sit down as, as, you know, human beings with respect and courtesy to each other, this can be worked out. It really can be. And, and let's it's just not a change our minds every five minutes. Right? Yeah, that's, that's true, too. I mean, and, and it's just that's one of the things that's really upsetting is the immigration thing. Sure. Um, I, I just... My, you know, because I, I look at it this way. Um, if it were me in an area where I had a child I couldn't feed or clothe, you doggone right, I'm going to do what I think it takes to get that child in a better spot. And I'm not going to blame anyone for trying. Right. And, you know, again, it, smarter people, right? They're supposed to figure this out. The problem prior to the Trump administration was they just kept changing the laws every couple of years. And so a lot of the, the folks that were in line for whatever, whether it be citizenship, a visa, uh, resident alien card, whatever it was, the rules would change on them. And they'd have to go start the process all over again. And when, the, when 
Trump became president, it, it becomes this whole other thing. And my my biggest complaint about all of it is when it comes to, you know, that uh, middle-aged, middle-class white person living in Wisconsin or wherever, what do you care? What is? How does this affect you as an individual? And if you believe all these inaccurate talking points about how it's affecting your bottom line every month, how much money is in your paycheck or in your pocket, well, you need to go educate yourself. So, yeah, it's a, it's a real deep subject. It and, is. Um, you know, I, 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 I agree with you. I think there's fear tactics that are used uh, that people buy into. And, um, you know, again, I, I will fall. I would rather err on the side of being a human being and providing compassion for people to try to figure out what the best thing is. And I'm not saying the best thing is just grant everyone citizenship to our country. Right. I'm, I'm not saying that. But there is an answer that can be developed with a human heart and kindness. There just is. Yep, 100%. And, you know, it, it's interesting to, you know, because I was center right for a long time. Now I'm center left. Um, you know, hearing you say all that, this doesn't come out of today's conservative. This does not come out of, you know, the it's it it's it just it maybe because social media amplifies it and and then the media amplifies it, and and maybe there's more people like us out there than we realize. But it just does seem like there's so many people on the extremes now, as opposed to in the center. Remember, remember when we were growing up, they always said if you want to win an election, you got to be in the center. You got to be right. more toward yeah, the middle, exactly. right? And now right. it seems like you got to be you got to be further in either direction. Extreme. Yeah, I don't, and, and, that, I don't and get that's that. really and that's really on both parties. Uh, primaries are driven by extremism on both both parties, and then you know the choice you have in a general election is that, and it ends up not being a great choice. Um, you know, I, I want to believe that. You know, people who tend to fall on the right side, not the right side, but politically right. I don't want to make it sound like that's the only side that they should be on, <laughs> but who are politically right. Right. Um, I, I want to believe that the alt right is a big minority. It's just so vocal. Mm -hmm. They are not being drowned out. Um, you know, maybe it's not, but I hope that's the case. I, I do believe there is a bit of a, not a bit, but probably a lot of cult of personality involved here, um, you know, where it's it's far more believing that, you know, one guy knows everything and that's just not the case. Um, and I, so I, I'm really hopeful that, you know, the course of time will rein this in a bit. But back to the social media conundrum, you know, all the things that I loved about social media this is the things that I hate about social media, uh, the, you know, flaming of conspiratorial information, uh, fake news, the real fake news and all these things. And the Internet also gives a voice to the alt positions, both left and right. But uh, really, it seems like the alt right has really made the Internet their thing and they get a following. And um, it's just it's hard to fight through. It really is. Uh, a lot of people buy into it. I, I heard one reporter. I don't want to lay claim to this. And I forget who the reporter was 
that an increasing number of Americans watch news for affirmation versus information. A hundred percent. And and that's a bad policy to have watching news. I want information, accurate information. If, I don't need affirmation. Right. And if I had if I had not tried to expand my worldview, right? I probably would have gone down that that extreme right wing rabbit hole, right? But when you start understanding, you know, the truth and reality and and that all of those things um and you start to realize that there's news sources out there that just make stuff up. It's what they yeah. do. And you, you start to understand that and you start to see other people you thought were grounded in reality, people you've known a long time, even since like high school or beyond. And you're like, why are you believing this nonsense? This is ridiculous. This doesn't, you know, for me, it's about being on the right side of history. For me, it's being yes. right. So it doesn't matter if that's right or left. I want to be on the right side. I, I of want accurate information. Exactly yes, right. 100%. I want accurate information. Yep. Uh, is what I want. Now, just because my opinions about a particular topic, I believe that I'm right about something. I'm not so arrogant to think that someone else's idea wouldn't work. Uh, and that's why, you know, when smart people can get into a room and compromise, I love compromise. It means everyone listened. It means everyone gave a little bit and it means everyone got a little bit. Um, so compromise isn't a bad thing, no. uh, but in today's political environment, it seems like compromise, um, you know, you're called a fake, whatever, a fake Democrat, a fake Republican, a rhino, whatever, you know, term they use, uh, because you compromise and compromise built this country compromise has kept this country going for, you know, more than 250 years and compromise will keep this country going. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you know, all of, all of what you just said, because here's the difference, right? Here I am now on one side of the aisle, more on one, that side of the aisle than I ever was before. You're still, you know, center right. You and I can have a conversation and a difference of opinion or a difference in philosophy. And we'll have that conversation. And at the end of that conversation, if we don't compromise, if we don't agree, we still like each other. We're still pals, yeah, we're not right? going to call each other names. And, and if it were up to me and you to come up with a plan, well, we could come up with that plan. Exactly. Right. And we could compromise. We could come up with a, a, a solution that benefits everybody as opposed to what we're seeing now, which is, you know, we don't agree. Fuck you. I hate you. You're an asshole. I don't like you anymore. I don't understand that. And that goes back to what you were talking about, about Reagan and Tip O'Neill and the compromise and all that. Used to be a time when Republicans and Democrats could talk things out, come up with a compromise, vote it through, and everybody benefits. Yeah, you didn't get everything you wanted, but you came close, right? Well, I, you know, and at the end of the day, I don't want someone to get everything they wanted because that means someone else gave up everything. Right, um, right. Again, so, the, the, word, the word in our in our country is compromise. We're a melting pot. I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, you know, I, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in a small, uh, town in middle of Ohio. It was predominantly white Protestant. And, um, you know, when I joined the military, uh, went down to Lackland air force base and, uh, shared a, uh, you know, a barracks with 55 other people. And all of a sudden my world just expanded overnight. 
all these people from all these different places. And then my first assignment overseas when I was 21 years old was in Portugal in this little island that I'd never heard of out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> and, my, and, 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 you know, my horizons expanded even more. And I'm so thankful for that opportunity because it got me out of my little, to steal an ass word, orbit uh, to see a bigger world. Yeah, and I had the benefit of growing up in in a very diverse neighborhood in Rochester, New York. We had Vietnamese, Puerto Rican, Italian, Black. We had everybody, right? And, and Vietnamese, you name it, we had a little bit of everything. We were the melting pot, right? And so yes. by the time I got in the military, that was like old hat. It was, you know, I didn't have the culture shock a lot of service people have, especially like um, service people that come from the South, right? So... Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks that are, that are isolated and, and don't have that, that world experience. The thing I wanted to mention about, you know, expanding horizon, a lot of people reject anything outside of their worldview. That's, that's the bigger issue. It's that cognitive dissonance. And, and, yeah. you know, I mean, we can get into the, the whole discussion about evangelicals and a whole bunch of other crap, but the bottom line is it's about expanding your knowledge expanding your horizons and not rejecting new information and, and not wanting to acquire new knowledge, but embracing it, accepting it. And maybe like you said, understanding that, Hey, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe I had bad information or, or maybe now I can, I can change that thought or that opinion because I have this new information that's more accurate or more right than what I thought before. So a lot of the, a lot of people, including myself. I'm not going to sit here and say I haven't thought this myself. But a lot of people feel like the only way change is going to happen is if our national leaders change it. It's actually the opposite direction. It actually happens at our level. You know, one of the brilliant things that the company I work for does is we have three what we call employee resource groups. One is called the Women's Impact Network. Another one's called the Multicultural Network. And and one that I'm involved in is called the Military Community Network. And what this does, they're resource groups that allow the entire company to come together and learn about hey, what was it like to be a veteran for someone who was never in the military? What's it like to be a military spouse or a brat uh, of someone that was in the military? Or what's it like in that culture? You know, what, what's your holidays like? What's your food like? What, whatever. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the impact of being a woman in the workforce. What's that like? So all these employee resource groups are there to expand other people's horizons. And, um, you know, it, it's, I just think it's a brilliant way for people like us to get involved. And if you do your part and enough people do their part to listen, compromise, and want to learn about other people and their backgrounds, that will fester up into our political scene. Yeah, eventually. I, no, I agree with that. I agree with that 100 percent. I think some of it has to do with exposure to other cultures. I think, you know, the military was great for that. You know, my you know, I I wouldn't have met people from the Philippines had I had I not been in the military in, until, you know, my last few years living in California. I had Filipino neighbors. Um, well, Jerry, you know, I mean, your mother, your your mother. My mom's Korean. Uh, I mean, she was Korean. Yeah, exactly. You know? So I mean, you are you are <laughs> a picture of of America. You know, you really are. 
uh, you know, your father's background, your mother's background. Uh, my grandmother is British, grew up in Watford, England, a suburb of uh, London. She met my grandfather in World War II. She went through Ellis Island in 1945 and came to the States as an 18-year-old with a one-year-old in her arms. That's my grandmother. I mean, so my mother was born in, in Watford as well. So we all come from different places, and but we lose sight of that, you know, for some reason, somehow. And if we can gain sight of that and understand that these are all brilliant places, Korea is a brilliant place. England's a brilliant place. All these places... Mexico is a brilliant country. There are so many cool things about everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we close our minds to anything outside of our orbit that we're comfortable with, that's when we lose. I, and America is a great country. And that flag represents all these different people, I'm, all these different I'm cultures. stealing all of what you just said. I'm quoting that somehow it's going to end up somewhere in quotation marks. I'm stealing all of that. And, and kudos to you for remembering that my mom was Korean. So I, I, I pat you on the back for that. So thank you. Well, for, I, for, I, I think, you know, I think she's a beautiful lady. I, of course, I've never seen her, never met her. I've seen photos of her and some of the descriptions you've put on social media. Another reason why social media is great. These are one of the things that I get to meet your family by proxy. And uh, I'm just fascinated by it. And anyone, you know, who shares those uh, items on Facebook, I, I really like to see it because it tells me where you came from. Yeah. And didn't uh, and, and I don't want to give away, uh, give up the ghost here and, and you can. You can say as much or as little, uh, uh, of course, as you'd like. But didn't didn't Joe go through a health scare or something not that long ago? Uh, uh, she currently currently is. Um, you know, she is. Um, you know, suffering from stage four cancer. Oh, geez. Um, you know, and but she's doing well. Uh, she's um, you know responding well to treatment. We're pretty optimistic. Uh, she's got a great oncologist at one of the best hospitals in the world. That's John Hopkins in oh, yeah. uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And um, the guy's brilliant, and uh, she's doing really well, and we're very optimistic. Uh, all her scans are good. She's on a great treatment regimen, and like I said, there's right now there's nothing to complain about. So she's doing really well and feeling pretty good. Good. Well, I hope you wish her well for me. That again, I've seen you more recently, but I haven't seen your lovely wife in in you know, geez. Not quite thirty years, but close to it. So yeah. No, it, it's been about thirty years, and. You know, it, I look at these photos from Iceland and I think to myself, you know, it just wasn't that long ago. No, it just wasn't. It doesn't. And then seem you like look it. at the calendar and, and it and it is. But again, you know, with today's media platforms, it's great to be able to get together. And, and I was I was very excited when you asked me on. Uh, I was looking forward to the discussion and um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, God. Yeah, I should have done this a long time ago. I tell you what, and I'm going to have Pat on again. You know, I had, I think Pat was like my second guest or first guest or something when I started the show about five years ago. And, you know, that night we, we spent at, in Alexandria at fireworks. And I, I know Pat, you know, there's a family connection to the ownership there. And God, did we have such a good night that night with that pizza, the craft beer, and just, just being able to see each other. You know, Pat's been through the ringer with cancer himself. He's doing his uh, yes, he has. You know, stand up for cancer, his 24-hour uh, campaign, I think, just happened or it's about to happen. I'm going to have Pat on again in a couple of weeks. Pat is salt of the earth, one of the, the greatest people you could ever know. 
Um, yeah, that's and, a good guy. Oh, and, and just gives of himself all the time. Knows, I don't know how, yes. he, I don't know how he remembers people's names, but Pat knows like everybody. Well, uh, that's what killed me about the guy. Um, you know, I know we were like casual acquaintances on Iceland. I didn't know him near as well as you did. But, you know, when we had that discussion that night, I'm like, Pat, is there a human being you do not know? And and I think the answer to that question is no. I think he knows everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Chris had wanted to come down for that and uh, was was unable to make it, uh, you know, he's gotten together with uh, Jamie Salafia not that long ago and they were going to do it again. And I know COVID ruined a lot of, a lot of plans for a lot of people and, you know, um, I, um, you know, uh, I know they're divorced, but, uh, you know, still talk to Mitzi and, and Terry Welch, uh, on Facebook every, every so often. And, and again, trade missing. That's outstanding. And, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of us that, you know, we were there all at the same time and you brought up Frank Pratt and Bob, we talked about Bob Everdeen. Bob ended up in the air force as an officer. Um, right. and you know, it's just really interesting. Some of us went far afield and left, you know, the military realm altogether. And a lot of people stayed. I know Terry's done some government work and some, some either uh, went on to other military careers or um, government careers. Right. It's kind of really interesting how all the different directions we all, all went, but it, it really, I, I go back to what we talked about at the top of the show about number one, I was in the Navy for 10 years, best duty of my career, Keflavik, Iceland. And, you know, if you didn't get out and explore and meet the people and see all the, the geological stuff there was to see, you did yourself a disservice. The food, exactly, greatest hot dog I've ever had in my life. Um, still on Iceland. You can get them. You can get them shipped to you. Um, it's expensive, but you can do it. Um, <laughs> it's pricey, but you can get them, but you can do it. You know, it's funny. Um, you know, Anthony Bourdain, right? The, the dear departed Anthony Bourdain. He did an episode in Iceland one time and it was a behind the scenes episode. And all he did the whole time he was there was bitch moan and complain because his whole thing, when he went to these different countries, he'd meet up with a local guide. Well, this, this guy, Dave Sawyer would have appreciated it. This guy took Anthony to all the wrong places. And they were, oh, did he? Yeah, and all the wrong food. I mean, it was all the Viking shit. And it's like, dude, why are you not going to a sidewalk corner hot dog stand? And Anthony Bourdain did that his last night in Iceland. He he hit, you know, and he got himself a hot dog with the remoulade. And he was like, oh my God, I've been here for how many days? And right. I'm, I'm just well, now discovering this. All you had to do is go to the gas station right off Keflavik Naval Air Station and get the best. Uh, fried fish and chips you'd ever uh, laid your hands on. And and how many places could you go to and get some of the sh- best, strongest coffee you've ever had in your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a brilliant place. It really is. Yeah. In the last few years, right before COVID, they were really uh, ramping up tourism and cheap flights. And they were really incentivizing people to go. And, you know, there was a lot of like Blue Lagoon draw to, to go. I got to go back once. When I was with Naval Aviation News Magazine, I was working on a series on Naval Air Stations, and I got to go back, and and it, it was a ghost town compared to what it was like when we were there. You know, it was starting to wind down, and um, but you know, I chose it. I graduated at the top of my class thirty years ago this month from Dinfo's Broadcasting, and 
I uh, was in school at the same time as Tom Jones Jr. And Oh, really? Yeah, and Tommy swore up and down about his dad and Keflavik. And when you graduate at the top of your class, you get to choose your orders. I said, I got to go to Iceland. I got to go work for Tom Jones. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, Mr. Jones is a true gem in a... Navy Broadcasting, true gem. When you go in his office, the first thing you notice is the pictures of him with with George Herbert Walker Bush and 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 uh, Henry Kissinger. Yes, I, right. I mean, you're like, okay, I'm I'm with somebody here. This guy's got. Yeah, he's, he, he he was a broadcaster's broadcaster. He um, he knew the trade. Uh, when he spoke, you listened. He wasn't just some you know warrant officer in charge of the the broadcasting detachment he knew what he was doing and um and he and he could apply it on air so mr jones was the best uh officer um in my career as a broadcaster for sure and you know the thing about it and we alluded to it and and touched on it earlier he let us stretch our legs he let us do things he did you know, I mean, never mind, never mind the international incident. I almost started with the basketball tournament, <laughs> but, you know, um, but the crazy thing about that was the next year I go, I go in his office. I said, uh, Mr. Jones, um, the NATO Eastland basketball tournament's coming up. Um, I'd like to do play by play again. He goes, you learn your lesson. I said, yes, sir. He goes, have fun. I, I mean, that's yeah, Mr. Jones. You can't ask for a better boss than that. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mr. Jones. He, a true gem. You go from getting pulled off the air in the middle of a broadcast to being able to do the thing the next year because, you know, it's a teaching moment. It's a learning moment. And you're like, okay, I got it. Yep. Exactly. And, and you want to go back out and do a, a better job than you did before because he believes in you. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it is so funny because everything that I, as I mentioned earlier, everything that we did there, I took everything I learned and I applied it in, in my, my sports journalism career. And I, I posted this on Facebook and I really haven't said much other than that, but 30 years since Denfos and I have been a working writer of some kind professionally ever since. No, that's, it's outstanding. Jerry, you know, uh, your career is something that, that, you know, I'm personally proud of. I, I think you've had a really wonderful time of it. The Raiders job is just something that I can't imagine how cool that was. Uh, you do great work, and, and I'm glad to follow it. And, uh, again, just happy that you asked me on here. I was hoping, you know, hey, I thought to myself, told my wife, I don't know, I'm like the most uninteresting guy in the world. Uh, hopefully, you know, you know, if anyone listens to this, they, you know, they don't turn it off in five minutes uh, just for Jerry's sake. So, Oh, stop um, it, Jimbo, because, look – you've had a great career yourself. I mean, air Force, 12 years, air force. And now you're a rocket scientist. I, I can't think of, you know, anybody who influenced my early career more. Right. And I was going to talk about this real quick. So you remember when we were coming up, CNN and ESPN were competing with their sports yes. nightly sports shows. Right. So you had sports center. I don't remember what the CNN was. One was called, but they were CNN was the better show. It was. Uh, and if you remember the, the, what I thought he was a great broadcaster, Nick Charles. Yeah. Uh, did it for CNN and he had a brilliant show. 
Uh, he passed away a number of years ago, but really ESPN became the albatross in the room and, and pushed CNN right out of the way. And, um, you know, you know, honestly, ESPN was something I tuned into all the time in years past. Nowadays, I'll only turn it on when the game's on. I, um, I can't do Sports Center anymore. Uh, no, it's a different show. Yep. And uh, it really is. So, really, all I watch nowadays is just the talking heads kill me. Uh, I just want the game. <laughs> I call them sock puppets. And the funny thing is, I know some of them. But. <laughs> right. I mean, I met Chris Berman. The first time I met Chris Berman was at Super Bowl 37 when the Raiders played the Buccaneers down in San Diego. And and he he was, you know, he's the same guy he is on television. But my guy was Van Earl Wright. And Van Earl, yeah. Yep, you remember him? And uh Yes. And you know, I did a lot of my my uh, nightly news sportscasts, you know, based on a lot of his idiosms and uh he um he was the only two-time guest on Sports Talk. Oh, wow. Outstanding. Yeah, yeah, we got him on twice. And the second time he can't hear, what in the world is going on in the land of ice? Uh, yeah, that's the one thing. That, that's the one thing that was always sad about my uh, Keflavik tour. It was the, um, you know, the day I left was the day I left the uh, the business. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that killed me. When I went to public affairs, it was all more, you know, media management, things of that nature. You know, I worked on the uh, base newspaper a while, but my love was radio. And um, that happened to a lot of us, Jim. Yeah it, yeah, it happened to a lot of us, right? Maybe because it took a while for me to come back and find it, find any kind of multimedia, right? Chris worked for uh, a TV station in Virginia Beach, but he was an editor. He wasn't on air. He wasn't, you know, a personality. He was just, you know, editing news packages uh, for the nightly news. I say just, and he's doing, you know, commu corporate communications now. Um, you know, I can't tell you what anybody else is doing for a living. You know, it's funny. Um, when I left Iceland, Friedrich gave me as a gift, a VU meter I had broken. Because, oh, cause, really? Yes. Cause I'm so damn loud. And, <laughs> and so when I was doing the show on my MacBook. Uh, before I invested in in some good equipment here for this this particular season, I had broken the VU meter on my MacBook more than once. Oh, that's funny. So, that's oh, funny. yeah, Friedrich always got a shout out and a call out on the show uh, every time that happened. Now I don't know if it can happen with this little little mixer I have, um, but uh, you know, Jim, I seriously, I, I mean, I want to tell you that you taught me that I could have a career in sports and, and the opportunity to host sports talk taught me how to be a talk show host, which a lot of the way we did it then is how I do this. Now I hosted a, a podcast for the Raiders professionally for two years called once a Raider, always a Raider. Um, and you know, it was basically an hour of me riffing with a former player. Um, it, it's, I don't take this lightly that you, at the beginning of my career in this were a huge influence, big influence. Well, and, I, I'm humbled to hear it. Uh, the, the best advice I can give to anyone about any career that they're looking at is really two things. And if you do these two things heartfelt, you'll be okay. One, be yourself. Don't try to be someone else. Be yourself. Uh, and second, you got to do the homework. You got to do the preparation no matter if it's radio, podcasting, um, you know, being a program manager of an engineering contract, 
being a technician on a line, you got to prepare yourself. You know you what? You got to do the work and, and then you'll be okay. That might be the biggest lesson I ever learned from you. And because of those times I was on the show and was unprepared, didn't know what I was talking about, to, to hauling garbage bags full of teletype home. And you know what's, what's crazy? I'm a huge Jack Kerouac fan. Everybody knows this. And next month is, is Kerouac's birthday. Uh, he would he would have been 100. And On the Road was written on a roll of teletype paper. The original scroll was teletype oh paper. Oh, my. Really? And you know who owns it? The owner of the Indianapolis Colts. He paid $2.4 million at auction, and he, even as a contraption, he can roll out the entire scroll of On the Road. So it's kind of funny. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny how this all ties together. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, in the immortal words of Scoop Hansen, nice. Nice, right? <laughs> yeah, Scoop. You know, I didn't mean to leave Scoop out of that. Me and Scoop turned out to be really good friends there, and uh, – you know, Scoop, me and him had a lot of fun as well. So uh, remembering Todd is uh, another good memory of Iceland. Oh, yeah, because, you know, I can't leave him out of the discussion about talking about, you know, on-base sports and whatnot. You know, he was the quarterback of the, the oh, championship-winning yeah. hospital flag football team. Scoop Scoop played a mean uh, bit of ball out there on flag football. He sure did. Yes, he and, did. Uh, he, he was involved in everything. Another passion of his was bowling. He loved bowling. Yeah, he did. And, uh, you know, it, it's it, it really is amazing how there there's that what, two to three year period of our lives that that will stick with us forever. Exactly. So, Jim, I count you clo amongst my close friends. I don't collect people. I don't have a very big inner circle, but you're in it. You always will be. And I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight. Uh, I appreciate it as well, Jerry, and the feelings are mutual, and uh, I appreciate the invitation. Well, my best to your lovely wife, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, she lives uh, a long, healthy life uh, despite all of the, the challenges. Good news on the, uh, the, you know, the medical front there. So fingers and toes crossed there. Uh, be sure Absolutely. To, be sure to say hi for me. And, uh, you know, next time I'm on the East Coast, uh, you know, we definitely got to have another one of our, our mini reunions. Maybe we can get some more folks to come. And then if you're ever up in the uh, Pacific Northwest Seattle area, let me know. And, and uh, you know, first round's on me. Absolutely. Make it happen. Yeah, definitely. We need to. Uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, rocket scientist Jim Mason Foley. Uh <laughs> That's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Knack podcast for my very, very special guest, my one-time supervisor and good friend, Jim Mason Foley. We'll talk to you next week.